the outbreak was really here in our backyard in Kirkland, Washington. So Microsoft was not messing around and they sent us home very, very early. My husband's a teacher. He got sent home six weeks after I did. And I oh remember my I gosh. He teaches fifth grade. They were raising salmon. Fun fact, fun little aside here. They were raising salmon in this gigantic tank in their hallway in the school. And they, he had to rescue the salmon before the school closed and bring them to uh, a little park where the rangers could take care of the salmon. Just a note to my producer, I'm going to I'm going to have you cut out this part about COVID and the salmon. However, I am going to pull a brief thing about the salmon to put a, 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 in front of the uh, intro music. So just <laughs> Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back. It's me, Christina. I am so delighted today to be able to welcome back a very special guest. I have had the opportunity to get to know her quite well over the last couple of years. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about her right now. This is Erica Jorgensen. Erica is a staff content designer at Chewy.com. She is the author of Strategic Content Design, Tools and Research Techniques for Better UX, published this past April by Rosenfeld Media. She is a content designer, content strategist, and team leader determined to bring greater respect to the content field. In addition to working in content roles for companies of all sizes, She's taught at the University of Washington and Seattle School of Visual Concepts. Erica earned her BA from the University of Connecticut and her MA from the University of Missouri's School of Journalism. In her free time, you can find her exploring Washington State's wineries or hiking with her husband and rescue dog, Rufus, who just made a camera appearance. Uh, and Rufus is part Chihuahua and part Corgi. And Erica informed me that she just sent away for his DNA. So... Perhaps that is a thing we can add to the show notes once it's received. Erica, welcome to the Content Strategy Podcast. <laughs> yes, I'm eagerly awaiting those results. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. Good evening. I, I just, a hard, hard hitting deep dive immediately into what matters here, which is your dog's DNA. So I always start off my episodes asking my guests to share their journey to content strategy and content design. So I wonder if you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yours. Sure. I'll, I'll give you the condensed version. I think like so many in content design, I started in journalism, worked at the Boston Globe in college, worked at the Seattle Times when I moved here to Seattle and then got a job at a bookstore, an online bookstore that needed a lot of writing. So a lot of book reviews, a lot of author interviews. And that, of course, was Amazon. They had nothing. It was a blank website and they hired workaholics like me to make a website out of nothing. And that's where I really started working in UX when it wasn't called that at the time. The company grew from selling only books to you youngsters out there who didn't realize that's how it started. We added different product lines like music and video, and we had to help people navigate the website. So that's really how I got started in UX and have parlayed that into roles at Expedia, Nordstrom.com, um, of course now Chewy, and spent about five years at Microsoft working primarily in content design there. So just um, yeah, a little bit of everything, a little bit of tech, a lot of, lot of e-commerce, but the through line really has been making great content, analyzing it, making sure I know how it's performing and making sure it works with the customers and audience. And we're going to really dig into that today. But before we do, let's just take a step back for a second. You started at Amazon when it was an online bookstore. And that yes. was like 1997. 1997. 
1997. It was a couple years old then. I know people who actually worked in Jeff's garage. I worked with people who, you know, employee seven, employee eight. Uh, yeah. So really at the start when we had to be really, really scrappy before book publishers were comfortable putting anything online, before the public was comfortable giving their credit card, typing their credit card into a computer, we took orders by fax when I started there. That was not everyone. The, um, a lot of people did need some handholding. They were not at all comfortable with online shopping and we had to make them comfortable. So we did things like one click, you know, created created features to help people get more comfortable with this thing called shopping online. You know, I actually have a very vivid memory at the time I was working for a cell phone dealership, just a small outfit. And, you know, when I started, it was like the really exciting thing was the Motorola flip phone, which is the size of like a large brick, um, maybe medium brick. But I remember my boss at the time was so fired up about the internet and e-commerce. And I was just like, my dude, nobody is ever going to buy a cell phone online. They need to see it. They need to hold it. Um, you know, because I was very wise at the age of whatever, 25, 26. But I distinctly remember him ordering something online with Amazon and walking into his office and he's like looking at the box like it is, you know, that he's Indiana Jones and he has just recovered this from the Temple of Doom. And I remember him actually unboxing it. And, you know, there was there was like careful packaging. There was a note inside. There were clear instructions about ordering online again. And he was just like, this is the way, this, this is, is way. how, this is how we're going to be serving customers from here on out. And I just like Amazon really, really leaned into customer experience very early on. Yes. Yes. And fun fact, since we're coming off the holidays, I am flashing back to the time when we, the web team, the website, the homepage team, we were sent to the warehouses to pack up books and CDs and videos when they were sold in that kind of format. We didn't have enough people to who would be willing to work in our warehouse. So we had to send our own staff to our warehouses to pack up packages for customers, including Jeff and his then wife, Mackenzie. They were working the shrink wrap machine. They were working the, you know, the, the assembly line to get packages gift wrapped and sent out as fast as possible. Um, 24 hours a day, we were, I was there from midnight to 8 a.m. shift. Uh, we did what we had to to keep our customers happy. And in that way, I think it was, it was great. The camaraderie on the team, like we were all there for each other. Like, oh my God, can you believe it? It's three in the morning and here I am. Here I am in a warehouse. I thought I was working on a website, but it was really great to have people willing to work with each other that way. And it was all very customer, customer centric to, to the nth degree. Yeah. You know, you must win like best stories at parties sometimes when you start like, oh yeah, back in the day when I was working in a warehouse with Jeff Bezos, it's, you know, no big deal. I mean, it's just really something that you were kind of there at the beginning of such a, and it's really an historic event, you know, just the launch of this company, which now, of course, I have completely given up on not shopping on Amazon now. It's just, I tried, I tried. Yeah, it was, it was strange times for sure. And I think we had an inkling of the history we were making. There were so many patents that we applied for. There was so much, so many venture capitalists in the lobby. I think I didn't fully know what was going on. You know, like I was 26 and I didn't know what was up, but um, I think we, as things got started rolling, like the tumbleweed started growing, we're like, wow, something, something's cooking here. It just is blowing my mind. And I, I'm, I have such vivid memories of that period of time. And I, I oftentimes on this podcast will find myself going, 
you know, back in the day, and I, and I try not to do that. But at the same time, I just feel like, especially when it comes to content strategy, providing that context of like how things, how the conversation started, how the light bulbs went off, like, oh, hey, I think we need to not just, you know, design a page on the website and then think about the copy. Really early on, I just think provides so much important context for where we are today and the sophistication of our tools and our processes and our methodologies, which is a perfect segue to talking about this book that you so very generously have written for the entire field of content strategy and content design. So I can you tell me a little bit about, about the origins of the book? When did you first start thinking about it? What, what got you excited about writing? Yeah, well, back in the day, no, I think it was right before COVID, really, I got this inkling of like, well, I'm not getting any younger. What do I want to be known for? What do I want to be remembered for? So anyway, yeah, so I, I was doing a lot of workshops at at Microsoft on, on the team. I was working on Office predominantly, helping sell Office to people around the world and helping the team understand how to use user testing and tools like that to drill down and understand what words are appealing to people, which words are confusing. And that really like words and phrases level granularity was really eye-opening and it got product managers excited. It got leadership excited. I did a lot of reporting out to uh, the CMO and, and others to help them understand like, hey, the words are important here. We're figuring out which ones are ideal. And that is directly driving business impact. And one of my coworkers after one of the workshops, I think it was sort of like a like a development kind of um, just like a dev day kind of thing and shared with engineering and others, you know, outside of the content team, outside of the content team, spreading, spreading the love, if you will. And he said, you have enough in your brain to write a book. You should really get this hour long workshop and turn it into a book. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then I was like, maybe, maybe. And that's where I got the idea. That must've been, was that like 2020, 2020, 2020? No, it must have been 2019 because it was right around when COVID started. Yeah. But I figured if I couldn't go watch music shows or socialize, I could write a book. So I did that. So talk to me a little bit then about the core concepts that you were interested in capturing in the book. I I mean, I'm obviously, I'm going to tell people right up front, go buy this book. It is just an absolute treasure trove masterclass in content strategy and content design, developing the research tools and metrics that really, really help to firmly establish value within any size organization. I cannot recommend this book highly enough, but I do want to give you the opportunity, Erica, to kind of talk through sort of what were your your core priorities in communicating this information to the masses, really? Yeah. Yeah, well, it did definitely start off as sort of a content testing, content study focused book. But then as I wrote it, I was like, well, we got to talk about content clarity here. We have to talk about plain language. We have to talk about making sure your lawyers are involved. Like there were so many little things that kept bubbling up. And I was like, well, this is starting to mushroom. And then it grew and grew from there. And then, of course, analytics, how to measure, how to measure the performance, all the different tools you can use. And then I was thinking, well, gosh, I'm I'm privileged here coming from Microsoft, where we have lots of data and lots of analytics. Not everyone has those tools. So what about if you're working for a startup or a smaller company or you're a, a team of one? How do you how could I convey this information to make it useful to as many people as possible? 
So it, the chapters, several chapters got added, several chapters got expanded, and then it became this 300 page thing where I hope people can use it as a resource for, for all things content design and content strategy, specifically how to drive impact and get the attention of your company's leadership, get the attention of your boss's boss and help them understand the impact and importance of content. A theme that we see running through LinkedIn and Slack work group, uh, workspaces and chat boards, et cetera, is, oh, I'm a content designer and I'm so sick of having to establish value within the workplace. And why did mm-hmm. they hire me if they didn't understand my value? And, you know, I'm tired of, of elbowing my way into meetings, et cetera, et cetera. What I typically will tell people in no uncertain terms is that the work that you have written about, which is about establishing value, which is about helping people understand the power of changes and recommendations for content and content design, that's part of the gig. Can you talk a little bit about your kind of values there and what you have seen across the organizations that you've worked with? Or is it possible for UX writers and content designers to kind of, you know, keep their their head in the interface and, and just like expect or trust that uh, the those metrics are going to, maybe this is like the most leading question of all time. Uh-huh. Not, not that I don't have an opinion about it, but can you, can you, can you talk a little bit about your perspective and kind of what you've seen over the years? Yeah, I think not only is it important for you to, as a content designer, or content strategist, to help people understand that direct impact of your work. I think it's also important for morale. And I'm finding this from role to role. I think Expedia did a great job of helping us understand, oh, this word lifted conversion by 3% and that translates to X millions of dollars a year. I think big places I've worked like enterprise, multinational enterprise companies do a great job of that. It's harder for smaller companies to get to that, but you can still extrapolate impact if you are going to do some content testing and see, oh, you know, the vast, like 80% of people prefer this word over another. It's not statistically significant and therefore not like scientifically rigorous if you're coming at it from like a UXR, UX research perspective, but it's very hard to quibble with, hey, the majority of our customers prefer this over that. And this is why the quantitative and qualitative combo is really powerful. Getting verbatims, getting, you know, direct quotes from participants in your studies about why words are appealing to them or not, or why they would click on something or not, goes right into review presentation decks for for senior leadership for monthly business reviews and things like that. I think it just makes sense. And I also find I personally really need to know about that impact for my well-being. If I'm going to be working who knows how many hours a week doing content design, which can often be lonely work, I want to know the impact of my work. I want to know that it's making a difference for the business, for the bottom line. And that makes me feel good. I think that's something that I go back to a lot. Erica, I want to go back to something that you said about providing information and value to folks who might be a content design team of one or folks who are working in extremely siloed organizations who may have trouble finding the right kinds of connections or people or systems who are going to give them the information that they need to be able to demonstrate the kind of value that they want to. Can you talk a little bit about what advice you would give to those folks or things that they can learn about that will will help them on their quest. Definitely. I think one thing I keep going back to, this is super, well, fundamental. Fundamental is, you know, the words that you use day after day, you can document them, whether it's in a style guide or your design library, the words that you go back to. And I'm thinking of an example from Chewy, like 
I work on AutoShip, which is responsible for 80% of our revenue. Do we say this is your next order or your upcoming order? That distinction is huge to customers and can have a direct business impact. So I like to document, document, document the words and phrases that are in the designs I'm working on to a very granular degree so people know that I'm digging into them. I want to know the voice and tone um, implications of each choice. And you don't need analytics tools. You don't need Google Analytics or Adobe Experience Manager or Hotjar or any of the fancy expensive tools that are out there to, to do that necessarily. You can put your thinking cap on and dive in and what you know about your customers and whatever data you might be able to get from your product managers or your company, your brand team, anything, take what you got at your disposal and document what you think are the best practices word-wise for your content strategy, for your content experience. That will become a laundry list. That would become very long, um, very quickly. And if you have the opportunity to validate those word choices with user testing or a tool like that, or partnering with your UX research team to really know for sure, or from doing A-B experimentation to see, oh, version A does this, version B does that, and it's 5% or 10% more effective, that's huge. And it's kind of scrappy, but it's also fundamental. And I find I just can't do my job without having that, that long, long list of content patterns, content design patterns to go back to. And of course, you have to be flexible. Sometimes these change as you learn things about your customers or maybe your target audience changes, da-da-da. You have to be flexible. It's not set in stone. But I find that also builds trust with my partner teams. I can share that with product managers. I can share that with engineers, especially if they're building and I'm not available to be there by their side to as they're building the product. I can say, oh, go to my content design patterns and check out this A to Z list of terms for you. What tools do you use to share those? I'm I'm using Confluence right now. You can use like Google Docs, a Word doc. Um, if you have a content design library, you are lucky and you can, you know, you can have notations in your content design library of what terms work or not. Where uh, I've also used Zero Height. That's another, it's sort of like WordPress, but better. So people can, people across your organization can access it. I think the thing that's most important is to make sure that as many people as possible can get into it, that it's not gate kept or for whatever reason, security, team silos, you want to make sure that as many people around your company as possible have access to it or know how to how to get a hold of you to, to find out what's in it. I don't like having things behind, you know, gates of, every, everyone should be able to access this stuff and that's not always the case. So I want to go back to your book for just a second. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in hearing you talk a little bit about, I'm not going to put you on the spot and say, tell me the difference between content strategy and content design, because I, I think it's less of a difference and more of a relationship. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how, because I know you think of yourself as a strategist, right? I mean, a lot of people put the, their design foot forward first, but of mm -hmm. course, I think all designers should be strategists, but that's a whole other conversation. But I wonder, can you talk a little bit about when you think of your work as strategic, what do you mean? What I mean is that it, well, this is going immediately to the definition, what I think of as a definition of content strategy is you're taking the business needs or the business goals, and you're overlaying them with your customers' needs, wants, tendencies, preferences to get to that 
I'm thinking of a, I'm visualizing a Venn diagram. Those two things come together. And in the middle, that's where this liminal area is where your work is done. Or that's where I think content design, content strategy work is really done. You can't just make something that's going to be compelling to customers. It has to achieve the business goals. And you can't just function as the arbiter of all, all things business because then customers are going to be turned off. So you have to balance those two needs. And that is not easy. You're also juggling who knows how many stakeholders. I was going through writing my annual review this past week, looking at all the people I collaborate with, and you have to get their voices captured too, whether it's PMs or partner teams, your legal lead, our design library experts, our accessibility lead, like all that input comes into play too. And it's this never-ending juggling act of, well, what's the most important? What, what do I need to incorporate most vividly, what can be put on the back burner, that is diplomacy and that is a strategic role. That's really hard to do. And of course, we're also often wrangling being short-staffed and being spread in a million directions and feeling like an octopus. There's that too. Focusing on the work that matters the most is important and communicating that to partners is very difficult sometimes. You know, you can't be everywhere at once. You can't be in every meeting if you're supporting multiple teams. Do you think that there are any other roles in design or UX that have to talk to so many different people all the time? I Because I, when I talk about content strategy with my clients, I, I often am just like, look, this is about connecting the dots across a million different parts of the organization, all of which have an impact on content. And I have racked my brain. I mean, HR, but I've kind of racked my brain about like, is there any other role in the design and UX space that has to do that in the same way? Maybe engineering. I think there's a, a kinship between content design and engineering because they're the ones who end up building the final thing. But before we get to the engineering point of the work, I do see content design, content strategy as being sort of the glue. I have to know everyone. I have to know everyone on the team and make the case for the decisions I make you know, that's, that's really hard. It, it can be super, super challenging, but I also see it as a, as a superpower. If you know, everyone, they also know you <laughs> and you can <laughs> brag about, you know, humble brag about your work, help them understand the impact of it, help them understand the rationale behind your decision-making. And that builds trust that helps people respect your work and then see you as the go-to person for, for decision-making. So I would like to see more content designers, content strategists take on like chief content officer roles or UX director roles. I see that as a missed opportunity that a lot of companies aren't aren't taking or aren't taking advantage of. For whatever reason, I see more product design leaders getting into those roles. And I think that's a big miss. I think the content people, we see it all, we know it all. We're so close to the customer and we're so close to the business. That's powerful. I won't go into this too deeply, but I do think that we are going to continue over the years to see such a misunderstanding of content within organizations as primarily marketing or it's quote, just the words, which I know everybody you know, bangs their fists on desks all the time. It's not just the words. I think a core part of that conversation is sort of helping the larger organization begin to see content, whether it is large pieces of content or words in the interface 
as a business asset. And we've been talking about that for a very long time. I think that the first time I ever heard that phrase actually was from Scott Abel with the Content Wrangler because they had been, he and Ann Rockley and Rahul Bailey had been talking about structured content way before you know, we ever started to talk about content strategy in UX as a as a larger field. Do you feel like the organizations where you're working content, okay, other than your current organization, which is great and awesome, do you feel that organizations by and large really are seeing that content is a business asset? Do you feel like that is shifting at all within kind of the larger milieu? What are What's your take on that? I don't think so yet. And I think that might be, if I dare say, maybe the fault of content designers and content strategists for not taking on that business responsibility. Yes, our roles are creative. Yes, they can be fun. Writing, you know, writers are, um, we are a truly unique bunch and not everyone has our skill set, but we need to layer the business, business savviness into our roles to really shine, to really bring that home. And I think that's, I'm looking back on a 20 year career and I, I see people who make, who write being relegated to more lesser or minor roles because not all of us are MBAs. Not all of us are, have that bone in our body. We have to build that muscle to, whether it's comfortable or not, I think to, to really succeed in our roles. And I think my master's degree is in journalism, but there's a heck of a lot of finance and leadership and management in, in my master's program. And I think that was very, very inspiring to me. I didn't think of myself as needing to worry about that stuff or having to to care about it as much as I probably should have earlier in my career. And I do see Microsoft, my role at Microsoft, content designers were brought into monthly business reviews, quarterly business reviews to share our work, to share our impact because we were driving so much of it, because we were responsible for so much of it. And if you're not part of those meetings, part of that influence and impact, you have to bang that drum to make it happen. I am nodding so violently right now. Can you hear? I, I can almost hear it. I can almost hear it. Can you hear it? You know, this is, I know that I've talked about this. I know that I've talked about this recently um, on the podcast. There really is a larger conversation happening in the field of design that, you know, so many folks who came in over the years, we've said it is our job to serve the customer. It is our job to represent the customer needs. It is our job to protect the user in these interactions and website content, et cetera. And there's such a swing now to, mm, you know, what's good for like what customers want and what might feel like is good for customers is not always what's right or good for the business. And that needs to be taken into consideration. And I really do feel like in some ways, a core value of our field is clarity and communication and empathy and ensuring that customer needs are placed in the center. I wonder if there isn't a sense of like, well, if I start to really weigh or lean into business goals and what, and what uh, we're needing to accomplish there in some ways I might, I'm worried that I might be selling out. Do you think that that, have you, have you seen that or sensed that? I think maybe that is part of the intimidating nature of getting into that work. I, th I see it with product designers too. They're like, well, I'm creative. I, I'm in Figma all the time. If I talk numbers and business impact, I'm going to lose my creativity. Or I'm going to lose my edge. I don't believe that. I think if you expand your brain power in any way you can, that's maybe you don't want to spend all day on that kind of thing. And 
keep your high energy hours of the day for your most creative work, you know, make sure that you're working in a way that's most productive for you. I just don't see how people can avoid it. And same thing, I, I look back earlier in my career, like journalism, like we would just write a lot of things and we would get letters to the editor. That's how we would know about the impact of our work. But being able to get those numbers and digitally and see who's reading what, when, for how long, the depth, scroll depth, things like that. This is all really empowering and it should make you feel better knowing the impact of your work, knowing how many people are reading, seeing your seeing your content and then taking action on it. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. And I think we'll probably look back in 10 years and be like, remember when we didn't have all the data, we needed to do our jobs, haha. But the companies need to keep up and give their employees the tools to, to get that information. And that's the companies that are doing that are succeeding. You know, I think the other piece to this, at least from my perspective, is to encourage looking at content design as as problem solving beyond even the user experience, that we're looking at solving for problems and meeting opportunities and challenges so far beyond the work that we are doing in Figma. And to me, that feels like such an exciting way to go about the the job itself. I mean, that is part of, as a content strategist, I'm focusing on websites and the enterprise. And that is part of what gets me out of bed in the morning is not just, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to be able to write, I'm going to be able to express ideas, but I've got to get in there and solve some complicated problems in order to create and deliver content that is going to exist in the center of that Venn diagram that you described. So I think that this is one of the many, many things that is so great about your book is that you really do spend time on sort of identify, you know, helping people identify like, what is the information that we're looking for? Why are we looking for it? What is the problem statement and so on? So what are um, your goals? Yeah, yeah. And I'll admit I was an English major to my father's chagrin uh, for undergrad and then getting a master's in journalism. He was like, oh no. Um, but the data, the data layer, the, the, the math, the information, the performance, the performance data is really pretty cool. And some of it has much more validity than, than I'm trying to think like, like heat maps, there, there are different ways that you can measure the customer experience. Some are much more actionable than others. You also need to know like what, what is real and what is not. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there when it comes to digital analytics and smoke and mirrors and things like that. And so to know, like, this is what our customers are doing. And we know this because X, or we know some customers are doing this because Y, that's that's pretty cool. And to do something, make a change on your on your app or your customer experience, and then see the numbers change. That's wicked cool. I love it. And my Amazon had that. We had this little overlay. I boomeranged to Amazon several years back, and we had this overlay on the website where we could see if you change a headline or change body copy, change a CTA button, you could literally see the seconds click by and the revenue get boosted or or negatively impacted by your word choices and your content choices. It was really cool to say, oh, I wrote a headline at 9 a.m. It made $40,000 in 10 minutes. I optimized it at 9.15 a.m. And, you know, um, it started making more money. It, it's really cool to see that that's, that you are empowered to make these really cool things happen. 
I really would like to, if you are a manager listening to this to this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> I really want to encourage you to encourage your team to look for those numbers and to ask about the numbers and to go and find the data to help inform their activities and efforts. Because what you are hearing straight from Erica is that that matters and it brings meaning to our jobs and satisfaction and opportunity. And it's just great. And I'm so grateful that you wrote a book helping people learn all about it. So thank you. Well, it's smart. And if your PM is the person on your team who has access to that data and they're not sharing it with you or they share it only weekly or whatever, you see if you can get a login or sign in to those tools and learn how to use them. A lot of them aren't hard to learn to use. Some of them are like Ferraris and they are a little, you know, good. You need to get used to them. But I think it's really cool to see how your engineers are building your AB experiments, how how your PMs are writing, they're usually the ones who write, you know, the monthly business reports and the numbers, there are so many numbers that go into that. How many of those numbers are you influencing? Probably more than you know. And that's, that's important in, you know, this current climate where our jobs are hard to come by or there aren't enough of them. We can, we can get more, bring more attention to our work and show there, there should be as many content designers as product designers on each team. That's my rant. That's my tiny rant. Oh, join the chorus, my friend. There are tiny rants and there are big rants. And it is important that you are out there with solutions and reframing things and tools that will empower people. So I really am grateful for that. Erica, we are out of time. Can you share oh. with me where people can find you online? Sure. I have, I'm on LinkedIn. E. Jorgensen is my LinkedIn profile name and J-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N. I also have a website, ericajorgensen.com. My book is available from um, Amazon, but I encourage you to buy it from your independent booksellers um, or you can buy it at rosenfeldmedia.com. It's available in ebook format and the old hard copy that's uh, pretty heavy. It's it's not cheap, but it's it's big, so... It's and it's beautiful, I will say. Oh, I'm grateful to have a couple copies here. Think of it as an investment. It is an investment. It is a lot of timeless information. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to seeing you on the interweb soon. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Great talking. Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of the Content Strategy Podcast. Our podcast is brought to you by Brain Traffic a content strategy services and events company. It's produced by Robert Mills with editing from Bear Value. Our transcripts are from Rev.com. You can find all kinds of episodes at contentstrategy.com and you can learn more about brain traffic at braintraffic.com. See you soon. <laughs>